Um, we continue on in our, uh, in our sharing of testimonies. And so I'm going to invite Delmar Oberholzer to come forward. Um, this was actually uh, Delmar's nephew, Caden here, was encouraging us to remember to pray. And so got a lot of Oberholzer representation in the front of the church today. So Delmar, come join me. We'll see if we can find a spot here behind the plants. And um, yeah, go ahead and, go ahead and grab that microphone. And we'll be ready to go. So, as I kind of introduced last week, um, we had been doing testimonies kind of like this. A testimony is just a story. It's kind of a witness to what God is doing or what God has done. And so last week, Lana Johnson was up here and shared a little bit of her story. And then, um, I don't know, God put it on my heart to invite Delmar. And so last week I said, Delmar, would you like to share? And he said, okay. And so here we are. So, uh, Delmar, as, as we kind of get started, in case anybody here doesn't know you, uh, give me a quick, um, give me a quick 10 second, what, what is Delmar Oberholzer about? What, what do you do during the week? What are you passionate about? What is life like? Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Delmar Oberholzer. Click that thing on. There you go. I am Delmar Oberholzer. Uh, during the week, I am a teacher. I'm a high school teacher at a Ephrata Mennonite school, a mid-sized Christian school up near Ephrata. All right. All right. And you've been doing that for how long? Uh, I have been teaching for nine years. Uh, this is my fourth year All at right. Ephrata Mennonite school. And you've been coming to Waterway and Media for a little while. You've got a couple brothers that have been here maybe a little bit before you. Um, you've been around for a bit. What is, what is God doing now that, that makes you feel like it's, that made you agree to share with me? <laughs> uh, well, over the past year or so, I've been feeling God in a number of different ways uh, push me to realize that I have an opportunity to grow or an area that I probably should be growing in uh, with regard to uh, church community uh, and being maybe more closely knit with fellow believers. Mm -hmm. uh, Which is hard sometimes when you live an hour away from the church building, right? Yes, yes. Uh, it is a little difficult. Uh, geography certainly has been uh, a good excuse for the past couple of years. <laughs> um, but it's been a, a larger problem. Uh, maybe problem is a strong word, but it's been a trend in my life for the past 10 years. Uh, I had a crisis of faith at the age of 20, and after coming through that, uh, I felt that the church that I was a member of at that time maybe wasn't the best fit for me. Uh, and I don't think it was a bad church community. It just wasn't what I needed. Uh, and so I, I withdrew my membership, and that actually would have been my first, uh, when I first started attending what was then Media Mennonite Church mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and then life happened. Uh, I, moved, <laughs> I moved five times, lived in three different states. Uh, so constantly moving, constantly being engaged with Christian churches, uh, but always on the outskirts, mm. uh, very much on the peripherals, not like, truly engaging, not being a, uh, a part of the community uh, in perhaps an intentional full way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's something that I, I see now is, is I'm at a place where I should probably rectify that. 
and that's why uh, I'm in the exploring membership class mm -hmm. and why I've uh, volunteered to help out with some of the tech stuff here. It's, it's been sort of on my heart that I should be a, a better part of this church community. So you've, you have, I know a little bit about your background, you've been taught about Jesus your entire life. And you have had some concept of God or belief in God, belief in Jesus for most of your entire life. But it sounds like God has kind of been driving this lesson home particularly for this last season. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always felt, uh, you know, at least since that, that time at the age of 20, when I had that crisis of faith that I was growing as a Christian, but most of the time it was more inward focused, very individualistic. Mm. Uh, and... And now it's sort of swinging that there's there's a there's a larger community aspect mm -hmm. of the Christian faith that has has been uh, deficient in my life. And so you're you're learning and being convicted more on how to live out your faith with others. Correct. And yes. <laughs> now you're a you're a high school teacher, and so you're spending most of your days around young folks who are kind of figuring out the same thing, right? Within the context of how do you as a teacher, how do you encourage those kids who are 15, 16, 17, and figuring out how do you encourage them to live in that kind of community that you're being pushed toward? Uh, it's interesting that you bring that up. That is one of the factors that sort of led to my sort of realization that I need to, to beef up this side of my, my Christian life. Uh, because one of our core values at Ephraim Mennonite School is this idea of teamwork uh, and we often tie that together to sort of the more Christianese word of brotherhood or fellowship. Uh -huh. uh, but teamwork seems like a nice uh, mainstream word to, to, <laughs> to communicate. Uh, and Well, effort of Mennonite school is nothing if not mainstream, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I <didn't. laughs> uh, and so teamwork within our classroom uh, means following sort of the Matthew 18 uh, principles for reconciliation mm -hmm. uh, and approaching problems as they arise. Uh, and it means uh, being more collaborative instead of competitive uh, and uh, looking at growth uh, rather than comparing oneself uh, to the, those around them. So those are some of the ways that I've expressed it in my classroom and as I've been sort of discipling and guiding these young people, realizing that I could be doing better at this in my own life. That, that's a powerful realization. Um, hmm. All right, I'm gonna ask you one more question. And, and I didn't really prime Delmar for any of this, and this is, a, this is a personal one, so. You just celebrated a wedding anniversary not, not too long ago, right? That is correct. How many years was it? That was two years. And so you're two years married. Does this, um, does this work that God is doing in you to think about how you work out your faith with others I'm sure there are some parallel lessons that you have been working at as you figure out life with Liz as a married man instead of just the single man that you were in the crisis of faith at 20 or even five years ago figuring this out on your own. There's, there's a lot of stuff coming together, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, I would say there is. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's an old German word, I think it's Gelassenheit, uh, which the closest approximation in English is yieldedness. Uh, that I just encountered also within the past year. Galassenheit. I, I think that's how it's pronounced. Okay. Uh, and the idea is that um, there's a sense of 
coming together and putting aside of oneself for the greater good of the community uh, and uh, sort of coming under the, the expectations of the group. Uh, and I think that's, it, it was originally derived in the sense of a church community mm -hmm. where people uh, sort of allow their toes to get stepped on uh, in, in the name of the greater good. And I think there are parallels there in, in, a, in a marriage relationship where you do have to give up some of yourself for the greater, the greater good. Yeah. And we could, oh, we could get into big conversations about forgiveness and, and mutual benefit and all that. So is there anything else, as we kind of wrap this up, is there anything else that God has put on your heart to share with us before, before you go sit back down and, and practice Galassenheit a little bit more closely with your wife? <laughs> um, no, I think that's, that's the main thrust of All right. what I wanted to share today. Delmar, thanks for sharing with us. Can I pray for you before you go back? Can we pray together? Lord, I thank you for the work that you've been doing in so many lives represented here today. I thank you for the way that you've been reaching through and speaking to Delmar through your word and scripture, but also speaking to his heart and, and challenging him to live out his life in a way that uh, is a bit more engaged, perhaps, with the people around him. Lord, I pray that you will help him to be a great son, a great brother, help him to be a great husband and a great teacher as he strives to live out his faith in all of these different areas of his life. Thank you, Lord, for giving him the, uh, the courage to come and share with us today. And I pray that you'll bless all of us as we hear his testimony and apply it to our lives and our experience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Delmar. Huh. But you, you just never know what you're going to... We'll, we'll uh, just slide these over here, Del. Thanks. You, you never quite know what you're going to hear about. As I said last week... Um, the way that this works is I ask people, would you come and share with us a little bit about what God has been doing in your life lately? And that's pretty much as far as the prompting goes. The rest of it just comes from the Holy Spirit. And so I think, uh, Delmar, you've challenged me to continue to thinking as well about um, how am I living out my life with the people around me? And actually, this leads pretty, pretty conveniently into this sermon that I think I'm about to preach this morning. Um, today, the title of this sermon is, Are We Doing This Right? Are We Doing This Right? And it comes from Mark chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 7. Uh, last week, we ended Mark chapter 3, uh, verse 6, and, and the beginning of Mark 3, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that is the, the religious authorities in that Jewish land where he was at. He was speaking with them about the Sabbath and kind of kind of healing people in times and in ways that were just a little bit out of the ordinary, out of what was expected to be proper conduct. And it says in Mark 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees, that is those Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That was, that was just how aggravating Jesus' conduct was to some of the people who were around him. And so, Today we pick up in the very next verse. So there's these Pharisees and Herodians. They're working together to kill Jesus. It says in verse 7 of Mark chapter 3, that Jesus then withdrew. It's an interesting word. You might underline it in your Bible. Think about this as our service goes on today. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. 
And so here, even though the Pharisees, the Herodians, certain groups of people, certain groups of religious people, certain groups of traditional people, even though these people are so angry at Jesus and ready to kill him, others are coming to follow him. People from not only Galilee, but Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan. People from everywhere are flocking to see and hear and be near Jesus. So some people don't like him. Other people love him. Now, we can see that happen in our world today, right? There are some people who are absolutely in love with Jesus, can't get enough of Jesus, love the way that he, the way that he has, has worked in history and love the ways that God is at work today. And there are others who are so angry. So there's nothing new under the sun. But here in Mark 3, verse 6, 7, and 8, we see some people hated him, some people didn't. And it makes us ask the question, what are we doing with Jesus? Now, there's a particular detail or a particular story that comes out of this, starting in verse 9 of Mark chapter 3. Because of the crowd, the crowd was so large, there were so many present. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. This is why he needs a little space on a boat. The people probably won't follow him out into the surf. It's interesting here that Jesus, up to this point in his ministry, Jesus has kind of had two main things that he's been doing. He's been healing people, giving sight to the blind and helping those who are, who are, who are somehow uh, not able to use their bodies fully. He's giving fullness to their bodily expression. Jesus has been healing people and he's been preaching. And I think it's interesting here, we can see that Jesus still values both. He's been healing a lot of folks. So much so that word has gotten out. People are crowding near him. Everybody wants to go see Jesus. Everyone who's sick wants to be healed. Everyone who needs help is seeking it out. But Jesus here says, no, it's still important for me to teach. He doesn't just stand around and heal people all day. He says, get me a boat because I need some space. I want to talk to these folks. He wants to preach to them well. See, it's not just enough to do good things, but it is also important that we explain why we do good things. Robert, I love your emphasis this morning on loving our neighbor. And traditionally, a lot of the folks that I grew up with were really good at trying to show how they love their neighbors. What's harder is telling our neighbors why we love them. Now, some of us in this room are better at talking, telling the people around us that we love them, and we're not as good at showing it. Jesus here brings us a really good reminder that both are important. Show people that you love them. Heal them. If you can help them, help them. But also tell them why. Tell them about your faith. Tell them about what God has done. Tell them why they are loved. And tell them why you bother to care. So Jesus says, have a small boat ready for me. It says in verse 11, that whenever the impure spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Remember, this is happening within the context of preaching, in the context of healing. Apparently, there are, there are people coming around Jesus who, who have these impure spirits tormenting them, torturing them, and present with them. But when the impure spirits saw him, they said, you are the son of God. They couldn't help but cry out the truth, even though they were aligned against him. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. That's an interesting sentence there, isn't it, in the middle of this account of what Jesus was doing and what he was teaching. This reminder that even when there is great power on display, there is also often foul power aligned against it. 
But Jesus gave strict orders not to tell the others about him. These spirits knew who Jesus was. It says then in verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside. So he's, he's no longer in the synagogues, right? He's no longer hanging out just with the religious people. He's no, longer, he, he's no longer spending most of his time in those places that are known to be religious. He's out by the lake. He's up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He's, he's giving power to do what he's been doing to these 12 who are now following him. Do you remember our study of Revelation back in the fall? Do you remember the picture of Jerusalem in Revelation 21? The picture of Jerusalem coming down from heaven to the new earth. This is what happens after Christ returns again. This is what happens in our future after the earth has been judged. In Revelation 21, verses 12 to 14, it talks about this city, this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to the new earth. And it says it has a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And it said that on the gates of that new city were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 tribes, these were God's people divided up into 12 groups, 12 families, and they each had their names. You can read about those in the Old Testament. But this is what made up so much of the nation of Israel, these 12 tribes. And so their names are written on the gates of Jerusalem. It says there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And you'll remember that that city coming down out of heaven, we talked about some of the geography of it. One side of this cube-shaped city was about as far as from here to Dallas, Texas. And so we talked about exactly how many bazillion mansions there might be in a place like that. So here's this new city, 12 gates, and on the names of the 12 gates, there are the 12 tribes. But then it's very interesting in Revelation 21, 14, it says the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there are 12 gates named after the tribes of Israel. There are 12 foundations named after the apostles of Jesus Christ. And here in Mark 3, we see Jesus naming these apostles. Now, Judas is a special kind of a fellow. We'll get into his story a little bit later, but just kind of follow along. There's some 12 kind of things happening here. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is reframing things in Mark chapter 3, reframing things a bit. He's been all the religious places. He knows all about the 12 tribes of Israel. He knows all about what has been happening in the book that we call the Old Testament, the history of God's people before Jesus. He knows all of that. And what's he doing here in Mark chapter 3? He went into the synagogues, went to the religious places. He talked with the leaders and the leaders rejected him. He said, all right, I'm out. I've, I've talked to you guys. You've had your chance. We could have really done some great things together. Now he's out talking by the lake to whoever wants to come to him. He's out on the mountainside calling these people up close to him. Instead of Jesus just focusing all on these 12 tribes of Israel now, he, he's kind of saying, I'm going to reset this whole thing. And now I'm calling out 12 men. It says in verse 16 of Mark 3, these are the 12 he appointed. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. I, you can't just say sons of thunder. It's going to be sons of thunder. I'd be interesting to meet Peter and James and John today. I mean, Peter was always sticking his foot in his mouth. He was kind of the leader of the apostles if there was such a thing other than Jesus. And, and so Peter was that guy who was right out in front. Those kind of people are fun to be around if you don't have to, 
if you don't have to receive the wrath of the people they tick off. But then James and, James and John, these sons of Zebedee, Jesus called them, Jesus called them sons of thunder. Do we have any sons of thunder in the room right now? I wonder if we need a few more sons of thunder from time to time. Bonerges. I don't know. But these are their names. Simon, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, this is Jesus reframing things. We had 12 tribes. Their names are going to be on the gates of the New Jerusalem. Now I'm naming 12 apostles. Their names are going to be on the foundations of the walls. And now we get into these next 15 verses, and we're going to cover the rest of Mark chapter 3 today. And these next 15 verses are kind of structured in an interesting way. Smart people would tell you that this kind of structure is called a chiastic. Can we get that up on the screen? We have a, have a, little, uh, a little graphic here for you. As we work through these next couple of verses, something to think about. There's, there is a format here. Oh, that is, Jesse put together a small font, didn't he? There's a seven-piece there's a seven-piece article that we're going to be reading here. We call it Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. There are seven things happening here, and it's kind, of a, it's kind of a little boomerang. It opens up in verses 20 and 21 with the story of Jesus and his family. We'll read it here in a minute. It moves on. Jesus' family, this is their first charge against him. It's the first accusation against Jesus in this little passage. Charge number one, they say basically that Jesus is out of his mind. Jesus is possessed. And uh, some of the teachers of the law pile on and give a second charge. They say that Jesus is doing his work under the power of Satan. So these two charges come forward, and then Jesus gives an argument about how that can't be true. And then he responds to charge number two. He says, well, yes, Satan is declining, but it's because I'm stronger. And then he answers charge number one, and then it kind of bookends and wraps up the whole story with another thing of Jesus and his family. So Jesus talks about his family. And then there's an accusation against Jesus, number one. Second accusation against Jesus. Jesus argues about it and then answers the second accusation and the first accusation, and we see him with his family again. It's called a chiasm, chiastic. There's three of you in the room that think that's the coolest thing you've ever heard, and you're never going to forget this. The rest of you, hang in. Hang in. So here is how this all works out. That's just a framework that you might think about. Sometimes for some of us, that kind of structure helps us to kind of figure this all through. Okay, verse 20. Here it is. These two verses talking about Jesus' family. Remember, he's been out by the lake, had to teach from a boat. He's been out on the mountain, called his disciples. Now it says that Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. That has got to be a full house to not even be able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, lots of families have said that one of their family members is out of their mind, and they're not making specific accusations, perhaps, about legitimate mental health. They may not be making specific accusations about things that we would call insanity. Have you ever said to your brother or your sister, your husband, your wife, your kids, or your parents, you're out of your mind? I have. I have. So there's some family language here. Nonetheless, 
This language is strong because they see it's not just talk, it's something that they follow up with. They hear that he's in town. They hear that there is such a crowd following him. They say he's out of his mind. And so they go to get him. Now, there are a couple reasons why that might have happened. They might have thought that he was in danger. He's out of his mind. Can he see how big the crowd is? Can he see that it's so full he can't even eat? We've got to go get him and rescue him. That's, that's one idea. Could be. They might just be saying, he's out of his mind. Big brother, there he goes again. He's, he's kind of, let's, let's bring him home. We need to settle this thing down. We need to get ahead of this. Enough is enough. He's out of his mind. Could be. That, that would make sense, right? Whatever the case we can see that Jesus' family is not super excited about what he's doing right now because they go to stop him. That's something, isn't it? Have you ever gotten the idea or gotten the sense or gotten the feeling that Jesus is at work and yet somebody's trying to stop it? How does that usually work out? Well, Jesus' family heard about this. They went to take charge of him for they said he's out of his mind. That's our first step on this chiastic, right? Jesus' family. Not only his family, but it says in verse 22, the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem. So these guys are so torqued that it's not enough for them to strategize about how to kill him. Now they're following him around just to yell at him. Think about how angry you've got to be to follow somebody around to yell at him. Teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, Charge number one, he's possessed by Beelzebul. That was a name that they used for the devil, for Satan, okay? So charge number one that the teachers of the law bring, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And then charge number two, it's closely related, they say, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. The teachers of the law don't say, he's not really doing anything. The teachers of the law don't say, well, Jesus is kind of faking us out somehow. He's just putting on a show. They can see that Jesus is driving out demons. They can see that people are being healed. They can see that there's powerful stuff happening. They're not arguing about the power. They're making accusations about where the power comes from, right? This is important for us to understand. And so accusation number one, well, he's possessed by Satan. Accusation number two, he's doing all this stuff that he's doing, because Satan's giving him power to do it. You see this? You see what they're saying? His family says, oh, he's out of his mind. Let, let's bring him home. That's a problem, but it's not quite the accusation that this is, is it? It's a different thing for me to say, you're out of your mind, than to say, oh, you're possessed by Satan. But this is what they're doing. This is what they're saying about Jesus. So, talks to his family. An accusation comes against him possessed by Satan. A second accusation comes against him, doing all this stuff because he's got Satan's power in him now. And so Jesus says in verse 23, Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. So Jesus calls these accusers, these teachers of the law, these who say he's possessed by Satan, he calls them over and starts to kind of tell them stories. And here it is. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In other words, Jesus is saying, 
Look, if Satan was divided, if I'm really full of Satan and I'm casting out all these satanic demons, he says, do you really think that that's how Satan is going to work? This is his answer to them. He says, if Satan's house was divided, it would fall. And then he says to them, and we'll see this in verse 27 in just a moment as the argument comes back around. He says, well, guys, actually Satan's house is falling, but it's not because it's divided. Satan's house isn't falling because I'm possessed by Satan. Jesus goes on and says, Satan's house is falling because I'm stronger than Satan is. This is the argument. We can see this here in verse 27 as it comes back around. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus says, Satan's a strong man. He's got a lot of people under his bondage. But Jesus says, I'm stronger than Satan is. You want to see somebody clean out Satan's house? Watch me. I'm going to tie up Satan and I'm going to go into his house and I'm going to heal the people that he's kept in bondage. And I'm going to set free the people that have been kept in darkness. And there's going to be new life in this world that Satan has been trying to hold down. Jesus says, you think that I am possessed by Satan? You think that I'm doing work by the power of Satan? Jesus says, oh, I'm doing work by great power. That's why Satan is being defeated. This argument comes back around. So he answers, he answers charge number two. You're doing this all by the power of demons. He says, no, no, I'm doing this all by the power of God. And then he comes back and, and to wrap up the argument, he, he comes back and says, and to the point that you think I'm possessed by Satan. Verse 28, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So you see the argument, the flow of the argument, right? They say he's possessed by Satan. He's doing his work by the power of Satan. Jesus says, oh, I'm doing work, but it's by the power of God. I'm not doing this by the power of Satan. And by the way, you accuse me of being filled with Satan. He says, that is an unforgivable sin. We talked about this talked about this about a year ago when we were looking through the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 6, there is also this reference to the unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's a hard thing for a lot of us to wrap our minds around. But think about it this way. Think about it this way. Jesus is both showing and telling the world that he is sent from God. Jesus is showing and telling the world that God is mighty, that God is in charge, and that that's where real power comes from. Jesus has been preaching and doing miracles so that people get the point that God is at work. And anyone who says otherwise can be forgiven. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Whew, oh, preacher. Need to be like Robert and stand a little further away from the text. Maybe I should use your glasses. <laughs> Jesus is saying that he is not possessed by the devil, but that he works by the power of God. And let us be very clear. Anyone who says otherwise cannot be forgiven because they are cutting off the only hope they have for salvation. Let's unpack this for a minute, okay? The only way that we're saved is by confessing our sins and, and giving our lives to Jesus Christ, right? Salvation is in no other name but through Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the son of God. If we look at Jesus and say, oh, he's not the son of God. He's possessed by Satan. We've cut off any possible attachment that we have to salvation. 
we can't be saved because as long as we're accusing him of being a tool of Satan, he can't be the son of God. And so why would we ever come to him for salvation? There's no other way to be saved. You, can't, you cancel Jesus, you disqualify Jesus in your mind, there's no other way to be saved. I think this is why Mark is telling and giving this account of what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander, every lie, everything people say, every careless word, that can all be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, in other words, looking at the Holy Spirit who was working in Jesus and saying, that's not God. Anybody does that, they're guilty of an eternal sin. What does that mean? It means that that sin is going to stay with them forever. Why? Because if they accuse Jesus of being false, they're never going to find the truth. And if you don't find the truth, you can't be forgiven and saved. Does that make a little bit of sense? Right? It's still, sometimes it takes us some gymnastics to work through the language. I like the way that Tim Gettert said it. Tim Gettert's a guy who wrote a commentary on Mark. And here's what he said. Those who attribute the work of Jesus to Satan cannot at the same time receive the forgiveness that depends on recognizing Jesus as God's son. Right? Write that in the margin of your Bible. If you're ever confused again about why can't a person be forgiven of this one sin, it's because those who attribute the work of Jesus to Satan cannot at the same time receive the forgiveness that depends on recognizing Jesus as God's son and essential for salvation. Okay? brings to mind the idea that C.S. Lewis made famous. C.S. Lewis did not invent this idea. He was not the first one to pen it, but it's been attributed to him because he wrote it in one of his books, and it's stuck in the minds of those who read what C.S. Lewis wrote. And he said that you must come to terms with the fact that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. But we see this all worked out here in this passage. His family's coming to him. They're saying he's out of his mind. He's a lunatic. He's, he's, he's talking crazy. He's thinking crazy. He's acting crazy. He, he's just off. That was how they kind of dismissed all this stuff. Jesus is just a little bit off. Well, I guess you can believe that if you choose to. The teacher of the law came to him and said, no, he's a liar. He's, he's filled with Satan. He's doing all, he says he's doing it by God's work, but he's doing it clearly by the power of Satan. So some people think he's a lunatic. He says things that are just that he, he's, just, he's just ignorant. He's out of his mind. He can't, he, he's not making any sense. He, he's a lunatic. Some people think he's a liar. Wow, he says he's following God. He's really following Satan. Jesus debunked both of them, and Jesus says, no, I'm the Lord. And I would suggest to you that there's not really a third option. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And people do all kinds of work to try to dismiss Jesus in one way or the other. I've heard people say, well, Jesus, I really think he was just kind of a regular guy who happened to be a great teacher. And so I'm going to follow Jesus' moral teachings. I'm going to do the things that Jesus told us to do, but I don't really buy him as being the son of God. Well, that's a problem because in addition to all those moral teachings, Jesus is quoted many times saying, I am the son of God. The father and I are one. Salvation is in me. So if he's saying all that, you can't just say, well, he's a great teacher. I mean, <clears throat> all of us have had teachers that we thought were maybe a little out of balance. It, 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 it's hard to see that, that he could be just this great moral teacher and, and then forget about all the, all the God stuff he said. We had to say, well, I, he was just lying about that, or, or he's just a little off. Uh, some people try to say, you know, that, well, Jesus was, Jesus was like, acting out of evil. 
like the teachers of law were saying, you know, he's, he's filled up with Satan, he's possessed by Satan, and so he's working by Satan's power. And, and in that case, okay, you're, you're telling him he's a liar. He really thinks he is the son of God, but he's not. He's just lying to us to try to dupe us. And, and we're told in the scriptures that we can know them by their fruit. What is the fruit of following Jesus Christ? It's freedom. It's wholeness. It's inner peace. It's joy. It's salvation. Or is he the Lord? Is everything that he said absolutely true? All of the teaching, all of the preaching, all of the talk about who he was. See, we have to come to a decision, don't we? Just like his family did, just like those teachers of the law did, just like all those crowds did, and just like everybody up until this moment in history has had to do. We have to decide what we believe about Jesus. Do you think he's a liar? A terrible scoundrel sent to deceive and destroy? I don't see the evidence. But that's what some people want to believe. Do you think he's a lunatic? Just another crazy guy? That people just, sometimes people like crazy, don't they? Sometimes people will follow lunatics. We see it happen all the time. Well, if that's who you think he is, I, I think that's a pretty weak argument, but okay. But if he's not a lunatic, and if he's not a liar, he's got to be the Lord. What do you think? What do you believe? What does the evidence tell you? What are you willing to build your life on? Remember that chiastic thing I put up here, the seven, the seven points? Jesus started by talking to his family. And then there's the accusation that he's possessed. And then there's the accusation that he's doing it by Satan's power. Jesus answers him. And then he answers the accusation. He says, no, I'm doing it by God's power. And then he comes back and says, and those of you who say I'm possessed... That's an eternal sin, because if you are convinced that I'm possessed, you'll never come to me, and I'm the only way to the Lord. And, and then this chiastic wraps itself up now with this little story about his family. It says in verse 31, Jesus' mother, in case we forget, her name was Mary, right? Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. So Jesus was the oldest one in his family. Remember, his mother Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, but she had a husband. His name, what was Mary's husband's name? Joseph, thank you, Destiny. Destiny, she beat you all. Gold star for Destiny. Mary had a husband. Her name was Joseph. So after Jesus was born, they, as husbands and wives often do, they had more children. And so Jesus had brothers. It says, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Here's Jesus' response. Who are my mother and my brothers? He didn't put them down. He didn't say, well, mom and my brothers, they just don't get it. He didn't say, well, the old lady's crazy. He didn't say, well, my brothers have never liked me. He didn't get into any of that. Didn't, didn't rip them down at all. In, in fact, he didn't say anything bad about them. But you can see he also didn't really quite honor them the way they might have expected either. Who are my mother and brothers? It says in verse 34, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. These are people who are learning from him. They're close to him. They've, they've worked hard to be near him. He looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus has been reframing things all through these first couple chapters of Mark. 
He's saying, look, there's a lot of folks that are believing the wrong stuff. There's a lot of people that are trying to pursue after God, but they're doing it the wrong way. Things have gotten out of whack. The systems and the religious stuff has just gotten so thick and so murky that people are missing the Lord. And here Jesus kind of comes back and says, look, my mother and brothers are looking for me. I get it. But the most important people are those people who have their belief in me. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He didn't say they are not my mother and brothers. I mean, Jesus had great love for Mary. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross, some of the very last words that he uttered while Mary was watching him die, his mother, while John, one of his apostles, was watching him die, what did he say? He said to them both, he said, John, this is now your mother. Mom, this is now your son. In other words, look after each other because I'm dying now. Jesus didn't unlove mom. You shouldn't either. And Jesus didn't unlove his brothers. You shouldn't either. Jesus simply reframed it. He said, look, family is not all that matters. What really matters is people doing the will of God. Then you can be my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says we can be that close. The bonds of faith are more important, he seems to say, than bonds of family. Again, doesn't rip down family, but he elevates faith and says believing in me is where real life comes from. Jesus is reframing things for everyone, even, even touching that, that oh-so-delicate but oh-so-important institution that we call the family. You know, we see people living this out around us all the time. Many, many of you in this room know stories of folks who grew up Amish. Maybe they joined the Amish church, maybe they were married and even had children, but then their convictions about Jesus caused the church to ban them or to shun them because they got out of line with that particular style of religion. I know people who had to choose Jesus over their family. They said, my family is going to, is going to disown me, they're going to disinherit me, in fact, they're not even going to see me, but Jesus is calling me to be his in a way that they just don't agree with. I have to go with Jesus. I know people like that. You do too. That's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about here. He says, look, this is how important your faith is. It's more important than your family. In Mark 13, Jesus talking to his disciples about the last days says, in the last days, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus says, your faith is more important than your family. Now, there are all kinds of teaching through Scripture that says, look after your family. I mean, Robert read for us this morning that we're supposed to love our neighbors. Well, for many of us, our family is maybe our closest neighbor. Love them. I know they drive you crazy. Love them anyway. You drive Jesus crazy, and he loves you. But here's the question I want to leave you with today as I wrap this up. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because your family can't decide for you. Dad can't decide. Mom can't decide. Brothers and sisters, sometimes they just think you're out of your mind. You're going to have to decide. What are you going to do with Jesus? Is he a lunatic or a liar or is he the Lord? What you're going to need to decide is every one of you. Every one of you. And I think there's a second challenge that comes out of this chunk of verses here today. Once you've decided who Jesus is, and especially if you've committed to him as your Lord, you're going to have to ask yourself if he is then more important than everything else. We have phrases and sayings like, you know, blood is thicker than water, talking about how, you know, we need to stick with our families before we, before we relate to anyone else. That's not a biblical saying. 
Jesus is saying blood is important. He points us to his blood. You have to ask yourself what you're going to do with him. And then how do you live out your relationship with him in the context of all of these relationships you've got here? Whether that's with your family or your neighbors or the people that run in and out of your life throughout the rest of the week. What are you going to do with Jesus? If your family kind of leads you away from Jesus, who are you going to follow? Which are more important to you, family concerns or faith concerns? Now, if you've got a believing family, a lot of times these things work together, right? Jesus, again, is not anti-family. But sometimes even our loving families can miss things and distract us from following after. How are you doing? Where are your commitments at? What are you doing with Jesus? Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for godly families. Lord, in the midst of all this, we see, we see Jesus' mother and brothers perhaps being a little bit off base, but Lord, there are a lot of families who are really seeking after you together. Some of them are represented in this room. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for godly families, brothers, sisters, moms, and dads, and kids who encourage each other all to be closer to the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you for those of us who are blessed with that kind of a family situation. And Lord, please give strength to those of us who have to stand more on our own. But Lord, I thank you for godly families. Help us not to make an idol of our godly families. Lord, help us to stay focused on Jesus in the midst of everything. And if our family ever gets off track or out of whack, Lord, help us to speak to them well, help us to love them well, but help us to follow you always. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. If our, if our husbands, wives, if our brothers or sisters, if our kids or our parents, Lord, if, if they begin to, to kind of walk away from you, Lord, help us to stand strong with you and call them back. And Lord, I thank you that we're not doing this all on our own, but I thank you that, that we can do this with the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The same, the same Holy Spirit that gave Jesus power to, to be able to do all of his work. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for being with us. So Holy Spirit, fill us up so that we can follow you well. Lord, in all of this, quicken our minds and our hearts and open all of us, open all of what we are to the reality that Jesus is Lord. And Lord, help us to see through the arguments that would claim that he's just a lunatic or a liar. Jesus, you are Lord, and we love you. Amen. Church, will you stand and sing with us as we sing?